Welcome to the Modern Drummer Podcast. I'm Adam Badovsky, Editorial Director of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this episode, we talk to Brian Reitzel, who began his career playing drums with artists like Red Cross and Air. In the past decade, Brian's writing, performing, and producing credits on movie and television soundtracks, including highly regarded Sofia Coppola movies such as Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, and The Bling Ring, have made him one of the most sought-after multitaskers in Los Angeles. Brian also just released his debut solo album, Auto Music. We spoke to him as he was wrapping up the music for the popular NBC television show, Hannibal. Welcome, Brian Reitzel, to our first Modern Drummer podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. The timing's really interesting because you've, um, well, as usual, you're working on a ton of things at one time, but um, the special thing that one of the special things we're going to talk about today is your 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 I guess first official solo album, uh, correct? That's that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it only took me ten years, but yeah. <laughs> well, first first let's let's tell people where where you are, where where you're talking from, um, and what sort of stuff uh, you you work on there. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, California. Um, I am currently finishing the score to the television show Hannibal season two. Uh, we do, uh, we've been doing it for about five months. We usually get about seven days to do a score. So it's been nonstop mm-hmm. work and we're finishing today. So that's, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you were explaining to me last time we spoke a little bit of how, how that works. I, I, you know, I think for people on the outside, they may have different ideas of how these things are actually approached. Like, tell us a little bit about, you know, how, when you're actually presented with material to, to, um, to create music to, or whether that's even how it works all the time and how much of that you're sort of trying to do at one time. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, the process. Right. Well, each project is different. You know, if this was a video game, it would be one way. If it was, you know, doing my solo record, I got to work however I wanted to. But with with TV, uh, you you have to work rather quickly. <laughs> um, and I have a full-time engineer here, uh, Michael Perfit, who's uh, in the other room delivering the score as we speak. But between the two of us, uh, and I have a music editor, Lee Scott, who's done you know uh, a lot of things with me, film and and TV over the last few years. Uh, and then it's it's the show is mixed up in Toronto where it's shot. So all the post production, with the exception of what I do, is done up in up in Canada. So the internet is a wonderful thing. Thank God technology works the way it does now that we're able to actually turn a score around in um, seven days, seven days to write and record and mix and one day to deliver, uh, which, which tends to be, you know, finishing mixing as well. Mm. Uh, Sometimes we're even recording like for this one, since it's the finale, I just, you know, I want to give it a little extra, uh, the show is built around um, six acts. 
the first one they call the teaser. <laughs> it's the one that sort of seduces you in, I guess. Mm. And then you have acts one through five. And, uh, you know, because there's commercial breaks. This is the first time I've ever dealt with commercial breaks in my life. Mm. Uh, and that's, it's a real interesting <laughs> place. And, and I watch TV completely differently now because there's these massive act outs on like, you know, CSI or whatever those sort of procedural shows are. Mm. And, and I'm really trying to, <laughs> you know bait the hook or whatever, keep the audience there, but without using so much cliche. Um, mm. And, and <laughs> it's, it's tricky. It's an interesting challenge that you have to do at the beginning and at the end of all of these acts. But, uh, you know, and you, we, we try to work on it as a whole. So the way that we'll approach it is I will sit down and watch it. Um, there isn't really been enough time for me to even sit down with the director or the, the showrunner. I just kind of do what I feel is right. And, um, I start right away. I don't like to read scripts and get ahead. I like to trust my instincts and sit down either at, you know, with a bunch of percussion instruments around me or even at the drum set or at a keyboard or at something so that when I'm watching it for the first time or the second time, I'm able to react to what's happening in a very sort of organic, you know, flowing way. And then, and then I'll build the entire score around that. Um, sometimes I'll just create atmosphere with uh, I have this this thing called a swarmatron, which is an eight voice analog synthesizer that plays sort of tonal clusters, and it's really good at creating atmosphere. A lot of it just sounds like you know room tone or, or sub frequencies, but that hmm. stuff is really effective. Hmm. And even if that's just my kind of you know template to build on, um, it, it works great. So. And then I got about two days to build more stuff, usually with percussion, because I like this show to have a sort of rhythmic feel. And then I'll build on top of that with with um, all the other instruments in the orchestra, you know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then I'll start peeling it all away, and and that's how I get the most interesting um, textures and, and things is is sort of taking things out of the salad rather than you know putting them in, right. You know, you get these combinations you wouldn't expect. Now, do you find, um, you know, I've been to your studio and it seems, you know, like sonically you've almost got the world, you know, at, at your at your fingertips. Um, I would also imagine that you, I mean, you have a certain, um, at this point in time, you have a certain sound, you have a certain style. Um, and part of that, of course, with musicians has to do with their, their palate and certain sounds they favor and that sort of thing. But at the same time, you're you've got to keep things fresh. Do you find that there that you are sort of consciously aware of, you know, retaining a certain um, <laughs> Brian Reitzelness to it, or um, you know what, all bets are off. I could use anything at any given time, and I like that sort of you know a, a possibility. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think I. I, I'm I'm constantly trying to keep myself um, interested, and and that means being um, 
diverse, you know, changing those colors to constantly I'm obsessed with making new sounds and, and hearing things that I've never heard before and I'll use any means to create that. Um, and I will try every sort of application, whether it's using a mallet, a bow, plucking it, blowing into it, putting it underwater, you mm. know, putting it on a pottery wheel, wh- whatever. Mm. We'll do anything to prepare instruments to make them sound interesting. So on the one side, I'm, I'm constantly changing <laughs> instruments um, to keep things interesting for myself uh, and and for the project that it's on. Because, you know, really all, all these things that I've done, and again, this is why I did this solo record, so that I could do stuff completely freely of any other sort of constraint, whether it's a narrative or a visual or whatever. I didn't want, you know, I wanted to do something that I didn't have anybody else uh, you know, <laughs> advising me on or or steering me in, but you know whatever that project is, especially with w- with film and with something like a TV series, it needs to have its own sort of sound palette, its own sonic color. But you you could give those same colors and those same instruments to somebody else, and it would sound completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, my mm-hmm. thing is always going to be my thing because it's just. The, you know, I'm I'm doing what I think sounds cool, and I've got a lot of limitations. You know, so <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, interestingly, before when you were using just some off the cuff descriptions of what you might do um, to a sound or, or an instrument, um, most of it was sort of like mechanically oriented, and we've spoken about this in the past as far as you know, you're having certain feelings about you know grids. And, you know, uh, you know, it goes back to, you know, that whole Beatle thing about, you know, you want to get something different in the studio, you know, do something with a speaker cone or, yeah. or, or, or put stuff all over the instrument or, or something like that. Do you, do you have sort of, do you feel like you have an, like, like an overarching sort of uh, attitude towards these things? Like, would you rather in most cases say, you know, what can I do if I go down to the hardware store and find some stuff that I've, you know, like, is that the first thing you might sort of go to or, you know what, today I'm I'm feeling that it's 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 a, a matter of doing some digital post-production. Yeah, I mean, it all just depends on on, again, you know, what I'm having to work against. Um, I do so much stuff that is has nothing to do with um, uh, manipulation of the sound other than doing it naturally. Uh, you know, put, you can, you can tune metal by putting magnets on it. You know, you, there's ways you can tune just about anything without using a computer. Um, Mm -hmm. but then at the same time, like you're saying, yeah, using the computer to mangle and, and, and change things is, is equally interesting, Mm -hmm. but I like to do them both. And I really think that the, the combination of, of, you know, like for example, the, the, the piece that I've, that I've just ended the finale of this, um, show uh Hannibal with is is, is uh, there's a uh the Goldberg variations by Bach is is probably the most um associated piece of music with Hannibal Lecter's character because of Silence of the Lamb et cetera et cetera it's in the book mm-hmm. uh 
so we've used that as a theme, right? I've used it three times, I think. Hmm. And and so I'm wrapping up the second season. And what I did with the, the Goldberg variations are variations on, on one aria. And there's 30 of them. And that aria has it, – it's not a variation of the melody. It's actually just a variation of the bass line. Uh, so it's – it all fits together quite well. So I time-stretched a piano, and it's just a piano. It's just a solo piano playing this this famous piece of music. And I time-stretched it over an eight-hour period. So that turned it into just this really slowed down, yet oh, the pitch is the same. So it's just kind of stretching it. And and what that did is it made this beautiful Brian Eno sort of discreet music-sounding um, piece with this lovely – uh, Bach melody and then um, added uh, clarinet and uh, some big low sub bass from a Juno synthesizer and, and some percussion and a few other things. Anyway, so so that that's a typical <laughs> process for me and that that piece of music is now a nine minute continuous piece. It's an entire act which is mm. something you probably don't see on television, but you know it's something you would do in a film. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it's beautiful. It sounds sounds fantastic, and it probably took you know an hour from conception to finish the the guts of it. You know the, but wow. that's that's me also being a music supervisor because when I'm scoring these things, I'm also the music supervisor. So to use my record collection is you know like using, uh, you know any other instrument in in the ensemble. Right, 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 right. Um, When you first started getting into specifically doing the TV work, um, were you you sort of struck by these sorts of things, like these realizations where, well, I'm just going to do it this way because this is kind of – this is the way I do things. I sort of invent – you know the process, not 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 just the sounds, but the process. Um, have you ever been struck by a, an idea or someone telling you, "Well, that's not really the way we do things in TV" or, or, yeah. or that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I always imagine that there's some suit on the other end of the phone, you know, you know, pounding on the desk and saying, "I need it now," and it's got to follow through on these, you know, these these sort of time time tested ways of doing things. You know, it's really TV is it's really interesting because I never in my life thought I would be scoring television uh, mm-hmm. i never wanted to i th- i think the music in television is actually really god awful but it serves a purpose it's just completely dumb um but you know television has completely changed and i did the first tv thing i did was was for nbc it was a pilot to a show called awake and i did it with david slade who i had done you know a movie with and, and some other projects with uh, and he, David's the one that actually brought me into Hannibal. But we did this awake thing, and I and I only did it because I wanted to be able to know that I tried. You know, okay, yeah, I tried that, and I, I don't ever have to do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did it, and that experience was not that wonderful. Um, I was dealing with producers who, I mean, really, they're pretty. When it comes to music, they're 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 clueless. I mean, they don't. Music is simply icing on the cake. Uh, but if it's not there, they they miss it or what, whatever. I mean, talking about music with 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 people is so abstract, anyways. Uh, but yet again, everybody has their own personal taste with music. So uh, 
I can, you know, I've been able to kind of walk into a room with these people and, and talk music with them and confuse the heck out of them to where they're intimidated by me and they don't want to say anything because they're in a room with six other people and <laughs> they don't want to look uncool or like they don't know what they're talking about. So, you know, intimidation works a long way in me getting to where I've probably got with <laughs> executives because I haven't really had much problem. It's um, funny. I'd, I'd never think of you as an intimidating personality. <laughs> it's, I, I just, I'm very opinionated about music just in what I think is bad. Um, mm. As long as I'm watching something and I don't cringe, I'm, I'm fine. So mm. you could have absolutely no music in something and I would be perfectly happy with that. You know mm. what I mean? Except for, you know, of course, some big horror thing, what, whatever. I mean, music is mm. certainly effective, but it's the bad stuff that, that irks me. Mm. And when someone tells me to do something that is going to just be so on the nose and so dumb and what that that's hard to do. Uh, and I haven't really had to do that, you know, but uh so that that first pilot, I, I didn't do the series. It, it got picked up, and I think it got really great reviews for for NBC. But it it was too complex of a show, and whatever. I wasn't involved. I <laughs> was happy, uh, and then I started working on movies. And then it was Gus Van Sant who asked me to do Boss, and mm. I thought, man, if Gus is going to do this, you know, then then. I'll give it a try. And I, I did that with him. And that was just fantastic because Gus was my boss. I didn't have executives or, or you know, they'd be in the room there. But again, talk about intimidation. Mm. Gus doesn't have to say anything except what he thinks, you know. Mm -hmm. And and everybody's like, oh, fuck, it's Gus Van Sant. He, you know, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and Gus and I had so much chemistry that we, we always agreed on everything, you know. So that was – I did I did two seasons of that and then I did a movie with Gus as well and then I did a movie with Sophia and and, and a video game all the while I think I did a couple of the auto music tracks in between you know those projects as well but right, right. yeah I mean it always occurred to me that you must be very um, very organized in a, in in a way um, in in more than one way obviously but I mean you know, here at the magazine, we have a product that we put out every month. It's yeah. always different. Yeah. But I've got a calendar. I've got yep. a schedule. I know what I'm going to be doing six months from now. Oh, yeah. You know, you're, yeah. Pre you're presented with things sometimes where you're like, man, I do not want to say no to that, but how am I going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I, I like challenges. Uh, the, the, the hardest challenge that I've faced other than, you know, sort of studio politics, uh, was doing a video game. And making a video game is – I'd never done it before. Um, they were paying me good money to do it. I, you know, I literally entered at the top tier of what a video game composer would get because I had, you know, success with films. Mm -hmm. And but I had no idea, no clue how to deliver this thing because it's like being, you know, I I, I trained to be a chef uh, while I was, you know, working my way up as a musician, and I, I did actually become a chef for about hmm. si for about six months. I ran a kitchen. And they're very similar uh, in terms of the prepping that you have to do, the the sort of fierceness of the delivery of something, the you know gun to your head to create something. I mean, all those things are very similar to 
to being a chef in a restaurant. And and I've been working in restaurants and playing uh, music sort of concurrently since I was 16. <laughs> so once I got out of the kitchen, I just kind of kept that sort of manicness about you know, other projects. And, and I tell you doing that video game, my first delivery was a failure. I had to go back and, and redo it, but I knew what to do then. You know, I knew Mm. once I failed and the guy, cause the guy that hired me was a video game composer. So (laughs) I had to, and you know, he showed me the, the early version of the game with all this music on it. And, I just turned to him. I said, man, this music is terrible. And he said, oh, thanks. That's mine. Oh, great. (laughs) Well, now I know why you hired me because I speak a a completely different language and that's what he wanted. He Mm. didn't, you know, they didn't want the sort of typical, you know, sort of Hans Zimmery kind of score, but whatever. (laughs) Video games, that's, that's the real, the tough thing. But, you know, you say the calendar with, with, with Hannibal, this, the post-production schedule changed 36 times from November, you know, sort of after Thanksgiving, which is when I kind of start conceptualizing for it. And then we start to make it full on, you know, after Christmas. And then you don't let up. Uh, last season, we had about two weeks to do each episode. With Boss, I had about two weeks to do each episode, which is what it should be. Um, and, and you know, Boss was an hour show. Hannibal's 43 minutes. Both of those shows had so much atmosphere in them that it required me to make, with, with Hannibal, 40, 40 minutes of music that's all mm. pretty much made from scratch. Mm. The problem is, is they reduced my schedule down to seven days because they got, they got, they had a problem between, uh, you know, making the first two episodes and they had to kind of stop production and that threw everything off. And, and that's what happened. You know, that happens in movies too. If, if the calendar gets off, the, the guy that gets hurt the most is, is who's ever doing the music for it because the music is the last thing to go on it. You mentioned up at the top. That, um, you know, the uh, the internet and, and everything else that's come along in the last 10, 20 years has made some things possible that simply wouldn't have been possible before basically working from working from afar. Yeah. Um, a lot of the movie work that you've done, I assume you're closer to home. Um, does that mean, like, for instance, with Sofia Coppola, does that mean that you may be in more meetings or actually on the set or how is that different from, from uh, say the, you know, the situation you're in currently with with television when you're doing movies, is it different at all? Yeah. I mean, the whole process with the movie is different just because there's, there's so much more time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it depends on the movie. The most time I ever spent uh, on a film set, I don't really like film sets because it's not really my, element you know i'm just sort of a an onlooker (laughs) Uh, unless there's something to do and and when i worked on marie antoinette i had quite a few on camera uh things that i had to do um so i would be there um on set coaching um and and you know i did with lost in translation i went to japan and kind of coached the karaoke singers um Mm. i was on set for virgin suicides just just to hang out uh, with with bling ring, I was on set because we had these club scenes. Um, so you know, if there's music, 
in a in a film and there's an on camera thing i would always be there uh mm. but but you know it 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 depends marie antoinette i spent about five months in france because i had to do research you know i spent months just studying like opera and stuff going to the libraries and looking at the museums and learning about the instruments mm. uh, of the era which was fascinating you know it was like mm. taking it was like taking a course in in music of the late 1700s which was such a vital time for music you know in you know music instrument making and things and at the same time part of the aesthetic of that movie was to use um, not current, but actually in its own way, very period music, um, music from the eighties, lar- largely a lot of music from the eighties <laughs> and music and car- and more current music that seemed to work within that. Um, I, I don't know if we've ever spoken about sort of how, how that was even conceived and whether that was an original idea that, that you and Sophia talked about or whether that was, you know, a, a light bulb went off in your head or a light bulb went off in her head or, you know, that was a pretty bold decision. Yeah, I, it, it, it's weird. It did, I don't think it seemed bold at all to us. It, it felt very natural. I would give Sophia credit with the 80s thing. The thing is, is it's really not very 80s because I did mix in quite a bit of current stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the Windsor for the Derby and the radio department, these bands that most people – don't really know because they were mm-hmm. such indie sort of or just smaller. I don't like to use the word indie, but um, and you know stuff by Aphex Twin and Air, uh, you know. But but it's the Susie and the Banshees, the New Order, you know. That was just and obviously the Bow Wow. Sophia had written "I Want Candy" into the script. Uh, mm-hmm. We had Hong Kong Garden in the script. I made her mixes. And, and, you know, like I did with Lost in Translation and that had stuff, you know, like Cocteau Twins and The Cure and, and mm-hmm. New Order and it mixed in with stuff by, you know, Vivaldi. And um, but those were kind of two separate worlds. I think I worked in three worlds with Marie Antoinette. But they but from the get go, we we knew we, we wanted to have Marie Antoinette's adolescent um, you know, sort of character in 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 the movie, and the best way to relate that to an audience of today is is with music that they can relate to. And I don't think I don't think kids today, myself included, get the same sort of adolescence sort of angst or whatever it is. And and plus the whole new romantic era. Uh, that new wave era was so much about that that look and that excess. I mean, we mm-hmm. she she modeled the character after Adam Ant, you know, that mm-hmm. whole design because that's you know that's how he dressed. It, you know, it was kind of perfect. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you first, you know, I remember the emotion of of watching and hearing it the, uh, for the first time, and sort of at first, you know, like a moment of shock, and then a moment of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, when you think about of that period. You know, especially when compared to what would come, you know, five, ten years later with grunge and sort of the anti-drama of it. Yeah. You, know, you really tapped into something that made, you know, uh, sense, you know, thematic sense. Yeah. And, you know, that I'm I'm very proud of that movie because it – one, I worked on it for almost three years. It was as long mm-hmm. as I've ever worked on anything. But mm-hmm. but um, the the there's some scenes in that movie that no one ever talks about, which is the – the the period music that is so authentic and true you know there isn't a mm. note of music that's played sort of on camera or in the opera mm. house or you know for Marie Antoinette that isn't a hundred percent 
spot on of that time. It could have that person could have sat and played that piece on the harpsichord in her salon and using the, those Scarlatti pieces. And since you know, I just put a Scarlatti piece in this episode of Hannibal, and Scarlatti was a composer whose music I, I also used in Marie Antoinette. You know, mm-hmm. with the harpsichord. So all that stuff that I did back with Marie Antoinette has really helped me uh, in all the classical stuff that mm-hmm. I need to put into Hannibal. You know, everything feeds into each other. The time I spent in Red Cross, the t- you know, yeah. the two of us talking about pop music and listening to Dusty Springfield to, you know, the the weird horror stuff from, from you know, and, and linking that to bands like Jesus Lizard as much as I would link it to Penderecki or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's always, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I always enjoy talking to you because I'm reminded, um, you know, it's it's so easy to get jaded, you know, and and most people's, you know, sort of thirst for new sounds and new styles and th- new old styles, you know, primarily, you know, the, you're going back for new stuff. You really do have to, you know, go back in time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, that's it, that almost more than anything for me seems to feed your aesthetic, you know, that search for like you, you and I both know that there's something out there in a record bin somewhere that not only is a record that we never heard, but it's going to open a whole door to music that we just never had that chance to explore. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think if not another record was ever made, I could still spend the rest of my life <laughs> finding new stuff because mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, you know, people ask me like, whoa, what are you listening to? And I am, man, I'm just discovering all this great stuff that's been around for 10, 20, 30, whatever, 40 years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sometimes Uh, I've certainly recently, especially because of, you know, Hannibal and trying to, you know, listen to stuff to, to inspire me have been listening to more, um, you know, avant-garde music, the, the, uh, once I learned that Pierre Schaefer, who's the guy that kind of invented music concrete, uh, got his money from a TV company in France, hmm. that just made me think, oh, man, the, the, wow, okay. <laughs> and th- this makes perfect sense for what I'm doing. You know, So really what I'm doing is so old school, yet it's, yeah. it just feels new. But I'm, I, you know, I tried to give myself some real limitations with this season of this show, and I tried to really focus on orchestral percussion and um, percussion from kind of around the world as well, without ever being sort of ethnic about it, you know. Mm. Uh, so I was lucky enough to go to Japan and to China in between both of the seasons of this show. I went to Japan before I started the first season, and I went mm. to China in between the two, and I brought back some just magnificent chimes and, and wood mm. blocks and things like that that I was able to incorporate into this season of, the, of that show. And I can tell you, I hear a blend of two or three triangles with a bronze gamelan and a Chinese woodblock and a, a big old Serto drum or whatever. And it sounds so modern when you press it up against a piccolo and, hmm. you know, some of the other orchestral things. And, and hmm. you know, and the, these things have been around for, for ages. We'll return to our conversation with Brian Reitzel in just a moment. Before we do, here's a taste of his brand new debut album, Auto Music.
We're back with Brian Reitzel at the Modern Drummer Podcast, talking about Brian's work in TV and Hollywood. Um, we haven't gotten to talk much rock and roll <laughs> yet, <laughs> um, but maybe this is a good segue into your uh, your new solo album, uh, Auto Music. Um, I want to know a bunch of things about the genesis of the project, but I don't want to forget a very important subject to me. And that is the overdubbing of drum set parts, which every time I hear it on a record for the first time, it's usually a record I've heard a thousand times. And then I'll notice, wait a minute, the hi-hat <laughs> is, isn't stopping, you know, during that drum fill. And there's there's lots of interesting examples of that. I think I heard it recently on a Who record from like, like an early Who track. I don't know if it's I Can See from Miles or something like that. Oh, uh, yeah. Sure. Floyd did it a lot. Yeah. Um and it's it seems to be the kind of thing that people don't talk about too much. It's almost like like a, with some drummers, it might be sort of like a a badge of honor saying, you know, I don't need to overdub it. I'll figure out a way to play it. You know, you know, Horacio Hernandez style. I'll, I'll just be the the eight limbed wonder. Yeah. Um, but there's very specific reasons why you know uh, why you would want to do an overdub versus um, you know trying to figure out some way to play a part you know, live per se. Yeah. Um, t tell me a little bit about, I, I noticed it in at least one place on the new record. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, look, I, I would, I think it, there, there are some things that you could not possibly play. Um, uh, and th there's a lot of it on, <laughs> on, on auto music. Uh, for example, at the end of the first track last summer, there's, mm -hmm. And that, and you know, auto music was, was based a lot on some concepts and some. I, I love new processes, new ways of making music, even really simple things like, oh, let's put tremolo on the drum set. Like on the song Gaudi, there's just there's 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 a volume tremolo on on the drum kit, which I had never done before. You know, it's a simple mm. thing. But with Last Summer, there's one kit that is completely dead sounding, like dry seventies carpeted room. Um, uh, close mic'd, uh, no ring at all. And then on the other speaker, there's a drum kit that is, you know, Art Blakey. It's all room. It's all ringy. It's a jazz kit um, tuned up. And I and they're playing at the same time. Uh, and I like that intricacy of layering the different textures together. It's mm. it's my favorite thing to do with music is to find new textures, new ways to weave things. And mm. when you talk about rock music, I mean that's something that's been going on in, in rock records for forever. I mean XTC um, did it really well where, you know, I mean that was very sort of angular, almost drum machine sounding stuff, but Terry Chambers was playing a drum kit and he was playing all this really cool stuff. You have more control if you record the hi-hat separately. You know, mm -hmm. if you do it a la Martin Hanna with the with Joy Division, I mean, he had, you know, Steven playing on the roof or in the bathroom or wherever he could get some kind of interesting acousticness out of the different instruments of the kit, you know, to isolate them. You know, the mm -hmm. Eagles, the long run, I think they recorded every single drum and every cymbal and every hi-hat on a different take. And my God, it sounds phenomenal. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but you know, I don't think anyone should limit themselves to whether it's creating some interesting polyrhythm or, 
you know, that's what we do in here. I mean, if I'm doing, you know, some orchestral percussion bit, I'm the only guy playing it. So I record on top of myself uh, like crazy. And, you know, with with the film and the TV stuff, sometimes we we literally run out of tracks and Pro Tools. You know, there's 256 voices that were allotted and I have to keep the window on my screen so I know how many voices I have left, you know. And that's also because it's also because the sessions are so big that you don't want to have, you know, if you're dealing with acts or reels that can that can be, you know, 15 minutes long or whatever, you you can't have one performance, even if it is just one performance, say it's me playing just a tambourine for a whole 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, And, uh, you know, you have to cut that up. So it's it's on the screen where the picture is rather than. Mm Because you, you won't you won't be able to find your sounds otherwise. The sessions are that deep and that layered. Wow. So I take it to an extreme, but I got to say, when it comes to overdubbing drums and rock music, uh, two of my favorite examples are the Abbey Road. Uh, Abbey Road has just got just beautiful uh, engineering and performances of, of drums that were that were layered on top of each other. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes it's just the fill, you know, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and um, another one that's modern and, and it still holds up is is a record that the Cardigans made that mm. that was just a great, you know, how like Sly Stone would layer a, a drum machine with with, you know, a, a drummer, uh, those kinds of early layerings of uh, in in pop music mm. man they work so good you know yeah. but but you know i think i think computers have kind of hurt that in a way because there's a lot to be said for the feel of a machine rather than a computer grid and yeah i i mm. i go on and on about it. i hate grids i like things to move um, that's why I still think that, you know, the early sort of punk rock records are so fierce, you know, or, or, you know, you're listening to Stuart Copeland, who's just pushing, constantly pushing the beat or Keith Moon, you know, just that feel, mm. uh, is so, it, it's kind of the most important thing in music for me is, is the way something feels rather mm. than, you know, oh, how do they create that or, or making something perfect with a, with mm. a grid it is, it's dangerous. Well, you know, it's interesting because time has a certain effect on our, on our viewpoints on this. Because I remember, you know, in the in the '80s when, you know, di- the whole era of disco sucks when it seemed to be infiltrating. You know, there all of a sudden you had a Kinks song that was sort of a disco right. song. The Stones yeah. did a couple. Um, I can't remember whether there's a Who song, but you know, there. You oh yeah, go down the line. <laughs> sure, <laughs> everybody pretty much did. Did you know? Four on the floor did disco, and who right. who doesn't want to? I mean, that is the most perfect beat there is. Is just a four on the floor. It it's infinite. It doesn't have a start and a stop. You don't have to ever stop that. Right. But it's still nice when when you listen to those, you know, those Giorgio Moroder records or whatever it is. When you do have the four on the floor, and it is kind of moving around a little bit, you know. Right, right, right. Well, you know, it's funny because in retrospect, I remember at that time things moving in a direction that some of us felt was too mechanized. But now if you listen to some music today and then you go back and listen to like a Madonna track, it sounds perfectly live, you know? Yeah. Our ears change. Well, and and, and I believe that you know, that those machines that they were playing to, that was still post, you know, people using uh, computer grids. If, if 
and I, I did some experimenting with my drum machines and I have quite a collection of, of, of drum machines. And, and I like to play along with uh, a CR78, uh, which is a beatbox. And I can't lock it to the computer uh, mm. if I wanted to. I mean, mm. I, I, I could go backwards and then cut it up and make a grid out of it. But what it does... Um, so well is just the way that it moves. You know, you listen to those Peter Gabriel records and those, you know, even Phil Collins, like in the air tonight, you know, that's a CR 78 and those drum machine or Blondie's heart of glass. Mm -hmm. Those machines have a real swing and a feel to them that you mm -hmm. just lock to that. And yeah, it's mechanical because it's repetitive and like a clock, it's, you know, kind of keeping this sort of consistent time. But, uh, for me, I much prefer to play to, uh, a Lin drum machine, like an LM1, which is the first, the first Lin, which I think has the best feel of any drum machine there is. Hmm. So for me, you know, we did an experiment actually on, on auto music where we did a piece of music that was about 10 minutes long. And I played to a Lin drum machine and we noted that the, the, the Lin would kind of shift uh, about three beats over the course of 10 minutes. Uh, that's how it would kind of fall out of time a bit. And and I guarantee you, if I sit down and play drums, that's pretty much what I'm going to do too. Mm. You know, because I'm human and you're playing for 10 minutes, you get a little fatigued, you go a little bit faster, a little bit slower. But over that course of time, you end up around that, you know, sort of percentage which is which is great <laughs> play to drum machines you know it's those man it's 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 almost like someone out there is saying you know no matter how much you try to make it perfect it's just not going to happen yeah you know and and with auto music there's a song there called called auto music one which was the first kind of auto track that was specifically meant to be listened to while driving mm. um and the way that song was was recorded is the drums were recorded first all as one live performance mm. um, there's no edits in the drum and the drums at all uh, and and then everything else was built on top of that. So that's me playing to a actually no CR seventy eight. That's just me playing as mm. a as a drummer. So whatever shifts are in the time there is, <laughs> you know. I remember Jay Maskus used to make those Dinosaur Junior records. He'd sit down and he would start by playing the drums first, mm. and then build everything on top of that. And you get this great feel, you know, mm -hmm. if you if you kind of you're not playing with anyone, which is a little weird to keep your sense of, of, of where the whole thing is headed. Uh, right. But that day I knew exactly where I was going. You know, I knew it was going to have this noy kind of motoric driving down the sort of highway uh, mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Now I want to talk, actually, I, I want to talk a little bit about literally what's on the other side of the glass as you're, as you're driving with the music on uh, about a year ago, I've got about an hour trip home and it sw switches from kind of a dense highway to suburbs and then goes through this about 10 or 15 minute period right before I actually get home where it's all woods. And, and, and I realized soon after I moved where we moved to that I didn't want to listen to songs during that, <laughs> you know, like conventional songs, you know, yeah. during, during that moment. So I'd, I'd be reaching, you know, for a CD that was something more, you know, electronic or something more sort of uh, classical or something like that. Yeah. And you know, we've talked about the L.A. New York thing. I, I, I still never feel like I have a good idea of what L.A. is like or, or what you're actually looking at. You know, you're making music for for being in the car, and you, and you've spoken about 
you know, that being influenced by your, literally your trip between your home and your studio, what are you actually looking at? And talk a little bit about what might make you want to hear certain things versus other things. Right. Well, yeah, I have the same issue as you. Uh, when <laughs> my drive is is and, and regardless, because really, uh, it the the drive from my house to my studio is just one example of you know a trip in the car here. Los Angeles is the greatest kind of motor city. Uh, it's it's built for cars. I mean, and and sometimes I have to drive you know, from my house or from my studio to the west side, to Santa Monica. And so, you know, it, but regardless, they're all kind of the same, which is that there's not, you're not driving in circles. You're going somewhere and you're starting from somewhere. And in between are all these different sort of textures, whether it's uh, housing development or park or the freeway, or in my case, uh, I drive... Uh, six miles from my house to my studio, which takes me, uh, you know, pretty much the length of of uh, a song or two songs on on autumn music. <laughs> and I drive. Uh, I live in Silver Lake. Uh, I live up sort of on a hill. Um, so there's mountains. Uh, in the winter, there's snow on the mountains, so you can see you can see from the ocean in one direction, and you can see the snow on the mountains. Um, but I drive through Griffith Park. Uh, uh, I think four and a half miles of my drive are driving through a park. I drive hmm. by a golf course, tennis courts. Uh, the the park has been in varying stages. Uh, <laughs> there have been several fires. Uh, hmm. We've had droughts. We've had road construction. Um, so you know it it varies it's it I'm lucky because I don't have to get on the freeway it's a super peaceful drive I see coyotes every night when I drive home um people on horses uh mm. I grew up in the country so I like that but then the other side of it is when I get on the freeway and I'm going 90 miles an hour to get across you know towards the ocean uh, you know, with the sun shining and going through the tunnels and, you know, that whole end of it is something that is is equally part of, you know, the auto music experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I want to picture you in your car. Do you still have the Volvo? Uh, no, a couple years ago, you know, the Volvo was such a great car that I used to have to have it just because the stereo was the best representation of a record. <laughs> so I couldn't I, – and Marie Antoinette was the last record that I did in that car. Um, mm. But that was the only way I could prove a mastering was to drive around and listen to it. Um, you know, Friday Night Lights, right. Lost in Translation, all those movies were, were done with this Volvo. And Volvo were about to introduce a new car and I waited for it and didn't get one when my lease was up. And then when they made the new car, I hated it. Mm. So I ended up buying a Mercedes – uh, E350 and I'm mm. on my – it took a while to adjust to the stereo and I even – I had a record I had to master and my mastering guy told me and this this is crazy but he also does records for E from the Eels mm. and E also drove uh, Volvo S60 and had the exact same issue as me and he told me that E rented a Volvo S60 to prove the mastering of one of his records because he wasn't yet – used to the system. 
which I thought was not only incredible that somebody was as weird as me, but it was the same car. Um, it had a lot to do with the low end. So what I did with, with, with when I got this new car is I really had to like learn it. I listened to quite a few records to get used to the sound of that system. And now, you know, hmm. I'm now in my third E350. Um, hmm. So, you know, it's been about, you know, six or seven years now I've been driving that same hmm. sound system. And it's a good it's a good system. It does fake surround, which is nice. I can listen to surround mixes in the car, which is actually really silly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and <laughs> uh, but I do a lot of stuff in surround, so it's kind of funny sometimes to play it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. There's um there's such a connection between cars and music. I mean, you know, obviously a, a bazillion ways we could think of, but if you just think about, you know, for for most people, it starts in, yeah, I guess, when you're a kid and your parents are playing a certain kind of music in the car, you know, whether it's something you love or something you hate. Um, I automatically think of high school because, you know, that, that I just think of lots of hours driving around, you know, trying to avoid trouble or get into it. And the music that we all shared largely heard, you know, coming out of our cars or, or, or maybe a boombox. Oh, you know, yeah. In, a boombox in the woods or whatever. Um, but, but the car connection is, is, is so interesting, you know, certain things still stick in my memory. Like one time listening to, I I remember, I can imagine it like it, like it was yesterday. I remember at one point listening to the replacements album, Tim. Yeah. (laughs) And the timing was such that day where, as I was getting onto a highway, I forget which song it was. I should know this, but I just remember the timing was – it was like I was in a movie. The timing couldn't have been more perfect. The song just kicks in just as I'm getting on the highway and I was like, life could not be any more perfect than this, you know, yeah. the, the combination of that. So when you know when, when you told me about your album, I, saw, I, I just thought what a perfect idea as, um, as a theme, as a connecting device. Yeah. Well, it's – maybe the song you're thinking of, Kiss Me on the Bus – it's got that gravy. I love that record, by the way. Um, you know what's what's interesting? I, I I didn't think about this till you said this, but you know I have been using a car as the kind of you know most premier sort of listening environment since I was twelve. We mm. used to make we used to record onto a beatbox when we would play music when I was in bands. And then mm. we would always go I played music from the time I was maybe fourteen with a guy whose whose father was a surgeon and his parents had two nice Mercedes Benz. And we would mm. make these you know jams or record to the beatbox and then we would sit in a car to listen to it. And that's what we always did, and yeah. and I'm still doing that. Luckily, I can buy my own Mercedes because I I didn't have a car for a while. But when you talk about high school, it's so true. I mean, I remember like because you can just blast it. It's like it's like a soundproofed right. sonic haven, yeah. and everybody yeah. does it. I mean, I can't believe how loud my wife listens to music. It, <laughs> I, I get in her car, I turn on the key, and it's like. You know, Elvis Costello just bleeding, just wow. And, you know, you're in your own little ISO booth. You can do whatever right. the fuck you want. Right, 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 right. But I didn't really think about that when, when with, with making auto music. It was more about, yeah, I mean, I wanted music to listen to in, in the car, but really 
all music is is great to listen to in a car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It, it's, it, it's true. And it's so tied in with the events in our life, you know, that certain things. I mean, I remember once getting in a car accident. <clears throat> Again, these things are just burned into your mind. In that particular one, because it totaled a Mustang, a 1970 Mustang I had, so it's, I still have nightmares about that. But I remember Echo and Bunny, Echo and the Bunnymen were on in the cassette deck at the time, and man, I couldn't listen to Echo and the Bunnymen for like a year after that. Oh, that's <laughs> great! That's great. That there's a record for you. You should, we should like ask people to sort of write in and say, you know, what was a traumatic experience you had in the car, <laughs> and what was playing on the stereo at the time? I mean, my yep. God. Uh, what was yeah, playing when the Fast and the Furious guy flipped his car? I mean, really? <laughs> right. Because I tell you, I certain kinds of music just make you drive faster. Mm. And certain kinds of music make you kind of drive a little slower, a little stonier, a little, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. It is kind yeah. of like a drug. It is a sonic sort of you know, uh, tranquilizer or whatever, the opposite. You know, there's yeah. a New Order record. I remember reading a review of a, a song when I was a kid in like Melody Maker or something, and it said that it was the ultimate song to drive to. Hmm. And so I listened <laughs> to it to to see, and I, I, don't, I don't even know if I drove at the time, but I just, I've always remembered that. That song did have a pr propulsion to it, you know. I remember hearing Radar Love. Oh yeah, as a kid. I mean, I mean, and I think the lyrics are obviously, <laughs> or or L.A. Woman. Sure. Yeah, I think I think you could really make a great playlist of just these kind of classic car. Yeah. There's lots yeah. of them in the '50s. You know, in the '50s, car culture mm. was so big. I think that. Right. Right. Yeah, Radar Love. That's a great one. There's a yeah, drum yeah. solo in that song, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. The original, I mean, everybody knows the edited version, but I think that song is seven minutes long, right? <laughs> I, think, I think you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And well, then there's uh, then there's Autobahn, you know, the Kraftwerk record. Yeah. That always seems so, so sort of exotic. It is because, up. you know, and it is. And, and if you go to the Autobahn, um, you know, which I finally got to experience when I would tour – is it is a wow. I mean, there are people that are driving well over a hundred miles an hour. And if you're in front of them, you better get the, you know, out of the way because it's, it's, it's deadly, you know, driving in, in Italy is, is, is I, I rented a car a couple of years ago and drove, you know, a few hundred miles in, in Italy from, from, you know, the airport to where I was staying and, you know, driving there, is, getting on and off the highway is, wow, it's pressure, you know? <laughs> People say that about New Jersey, you know, because the towns are so small. Oh, right. Sure. <laughs> that the exits are, are, are every 50 feet. Yeah. You know, we're used to it, so we sort of laugh. <laughs> Everybody just adjusts to their city, you know? Like, I, I remember driving in L.A. for the first time and I was probably listening to, like, Missing Persons or, or mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, it was... 1984 I just got a, a brand new car and I drove down here to visit a friend and I remember I, I made a tape then I want and I still have it and it still plays on one side was the first record by the band Icicle Works mm. which is a fantastic drum record because the drummer Chris Sharrock has gone on to play with Oasis and uh, all these amazing men. He's just, he, you know, like Zach Starkey. I think he and Zach Starkey have been in the same band twice. You know what I mean? Uh, is that is that the band that did Whisper to a Scream? Yes. That that yeah. And, and yeah. it's that okay. record. It's that record. Okay. And Chris's, that record was huge for me in my car. I used mm. to park my car. I grew up in the country. I would park my car. I'd cut school. 
uh, park my car, turn on the stereo, and then drum along on the seat to that record. And I probably <laughs> did that, you know, for well over, you know, two, three hundred hours. That was one of those <laughs> records that, and I kept drumsticks in my car, and I would just sit there, and the seat was kind of the perfect thing to play on. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Sounded great, but I, man, that record—it's—it's it's unrelentless. Just you know, just toms mm-hmm. the whole record, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. just a fantastic record to to have as a in your car as a young drummer. You know, they they just reissued uh, Soul Mining. Oh yeah, the the the, the and that's yeah. I was so happy to hear that because it's yeah. one of my all time favorite records, and and the drums on that I actually listened to. I had it on the headphones in the gym this morning, and. I, it's it's phenomenal, but in such an kind of like an '80s way, you know what I'm saying? Um, like, yeah. Like you wouldn't make a record like that today necessarily. I'm not quite sure why. Well, you you you. you I mean, a lot of those records were really labor, labored over, and you just you couldn't mm. be bothered to do it. I mean, mm. you read about how the Human League made some of those records and how they had to stack synth after synth and to tune them and to and to tighten them up with these sort of analog sequencers and early early versions of sort of MIDI, you know, things syncing together. It was really, really difficult to do. Mm. So nowadays it's so easy to do and it, it just doesn't sound the same. The richness isn't the same, but those records were so labored over. I mean, my God. <laughs> and it's funny too. And, and, but you know, with what in mind too, like it, it's not like the, the was anybody's, you know, idea of a guaranteed top 40, American pop hit, yeah, you know, yeah, but but that is that is kind of a good example of somebody using technology. What's that guy's name? Matt. Um, uh, Matt Johnson. Yeah, Matt Johnson was was really quite brilliant. You know, I, he doesn't get as much respect in this country. In England, he's kind of a king, but yeah. but he doesn't get as much respect in this country. And I think most people just know like that one big dance song. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny listening yeah. to this stuff because I go and the other day I was I was you know digging through my iTunes library and I stumbled upon a that petrol emotion track. And then I went and like YouTubed and watched them. And I saw them play back in the day in a club mm. and at the Fillmore. And that guy was just, he was a man machine. Mm. He was kind of like uh, my friend, uh, uh, Thomas, who plays in Phoenix, who is a, right. cur- Thomas is a current day man machine there. <laughs> I've not seen another drummer with the kind of grace and the sort of, you know, kind of incredibly physical precision, uh, yet with soul and a and a newness, mm. a mod. He's a human drum machine, mm. but uh, uh, incredible. But th- that petrol emotion, especially the record Babel, which has mm. got you know the two brothers from the Undertones joined that band, and they had mm. an American singer, and they used some pretty early days of of sampling and stuff to create loops, and they just. Ugh. You know, we we could probably spend a day just talking about sort of eighties, eight. You know, you reel me in, (laughs) who don't get their respect. But not to leave the subject, you know, some of the records I think of immediately are like those Julian Cope records. Oh yeah, Um, and I I guess there were a number of people on on some of the those records, like maybe Chris Witten, I guess. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, So precise and so strong, and and again, coming out of that era of. You know, which in retrospect, a lot of people felt was kind of plasticky, and the you know the era of the of the drum machine and all that. But but man, some of those records from from back then, even the the precision ones, oh, are, yeah. are just dripping in emotion. You oh, know? incredible! Yeah, I mean, 
my God, when you listen to, you know, some of the early New Order stuff and and mm. th- that stuff where the 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 technology and and tape, you know, when mm. you hit tape with something, you're just going to get this punch that you're not going to get any other way. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. great now because you know with the work that we're doing in here, you know, we've got a PPG wave synthesizer, we've got a CS80, we've got a Juno, we've got these keyboards, these instruments that. I mean, they don't go down in value either. I think a Jupiter 8, like an Auto Music 1, that song is a pretty good listen in terms of the the different keyboards. You've got an you've got a Yamaha YC45 organ, which was the organ that Terry Riley did all those cool um records with. It's got this timbre to it that just sits in there like this you know this this shining moment it just sounds incredibly reedy and beautiful and blah 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 but then you've got a jupiter 8 bubbling underneath it which mm. a lot of these these records we're talking about the jupiter 8 was like the arpeggiator you know what i mean mm. it's got it's got that fatness that they I'm, as much as i appreciate digital it just doesn't have it mm. you know mm. it's got a whole mm. other level which is a convenience level and i don't think it's ever all that interesting to to make something that's easy unless mm. you're sitting at a piano unless you're sitting at a guitar whatever but if you want something interesting sonically it's it's you you got to spend some time with it <laughs> yeah it's going to be some work right yeah. um and, on that on that subject, um, you know, we've all read interviews, whether a modern drummer or or elsewhere. You know, back in the day, sometimes you'd get these, um, you know, these jazz guys who came up in a time, you know, where you sort of had your 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 secrets, you know, your trade secrets or or your licks. And you know, some guys are very happy to tell you whatever it is that they do to the extent that they can explain it. And then there, you know, there's some guys who are like, yeah, you know what, I'll give you some of it, but I'm not going to give it all away. Um, you know, you do so much experimentation in the studio. You know, you're 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 just happy to talk about keyboards and glass pianos and um, glass pianos. Did I get that right? Uh, glass harmonicas. Glass harmonicas. Bode, right, exactly. bode pianos. There's a lot of bowed piano on on the auto music record. How do you bow a piano? Can you get a bow in, inside of it? <laughs> well, I I was doing a film um, at the time called Peacock, and and with films you get a little time to kind of experiment with sounds to figure out the sound of it. And Peacock took place in the 50s in rural like um, Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I. Looking at 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 the script and reading about it, I all I could think of was wood. I needed to use a lot of wooden instruments, and I have a hundred year old piano that's got a massive mahogany soundboard. It's just a big wooden thing, and yeah, it's got strings on it too. Uh, and <laughs> I had seen this thing on on NPR or on the internet somewhere of of an ensemble that played a bowed piano and you had like six or seven or maybe 10 people standing around a, a giant grand piano and they all had, uh, you know, string, it looked like strings looped through the different strings. Uh, and, Mm. and upon doing my research, I learned that they used, some of them had horsehair, which is what, you know, violin bows and such are made from. Mm. And then others used fishing line, um, and I just started experimenting. The problem is that I don't have an, uh, grand piano. My piano is an upright. Mm. <laughs> it's this mm. giant old upright and I love it. It's got so much character. And, uh, I found that the only way to get the bass notes to resonate, you, 
was to use fishing line and I tried all different gauges and everything to get the sound that I liked. Mm -hmm. And basically what I did is I just kind of cut them and made these um, – because uh, with a bow, you know, it's a loop. It's got a wood, and then the 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 horsehair joins it on either side. Now you can't right. you can't get that in the string. So I just cut a bow, and then glued the edge together so it wasn't all frayed. And then I would loop it through the piano, oh, okay. and then I would hold down the sustain pedal, mm-hmm. and I would get a nice you know, get a nice tone out of each note. And I did as much of the piano as I could. I couldn't get the really high strings. Um, and then I did a little bit of studio wizardry to, to, <laughs> to take it a little further. And then I just put it, put it on a, a keyboard and play it. And um, that was all that ended up being my orchestra. I could literally sit down and play on a piano what sounded like a rather stoned orchestra <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because when you play a, a piano note and it's and it's fading away, it's harmonic balance changes, you know, so it it sounds mm-hmm. like it's, you know, you're in that in between world. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of the world that I'm most interested in. I'm never really into the fundamental note. It's all the notes that are after it that inter- mm. interest me. And and I tried to blur the line of the fundamental note quite a bit so that mm. you were just left with this, you know, sort of really harmonically rich uh, mm. voice. Mm. And uh, I think there's like three songs on Autumn. The song Ozu, which is the uh, – yeah, that is all – it sounds like guitar, but it's almost all bowed piano. And mm-hmm. and to further that experiment, I – that song was a study in tremolo. So there's – there's you know, it was different tremolo speed. So you would have one playing, you know, sort of whole note tremolo. Then you would have quarter note, 16th, 8th, whatever, these different divisions. And mm-hmm. so one, one chord <laughs> – and then to take it further – if if it was the chords are quite simple in that song i think they're all like four note chords i would take each note in the chord uh and record it separately um cuz i'm now using midi to com- control my bowed piano samples that i've made mm-hmm. and each note could have a different tremolo speed on it so that created this whole other sort of pulsing effect once you start layering the the dominant or whatever note that you're putting with a slower tremolo mm. speed as opposed to a faster one. It just became this really interesting and really rich um, sound. And mm. to do that for that whole song, I mean, that that took weeks to do that. It took weeks to do it. That that track took forever, but I was in no hurry because I would work on my film and then I would come and work on that in, be, in between. Right, right, and right. and then and then what's interesting too is there's a there's another track on the record and and this is kind of a, a nod to Noi because when Noi, Noi made a record once and their record company said I can't remember which one it is I, I the record company said we need more material and uh, they said well give us some more money and the label said no we already gave you all the money so what they did is they took something they had already recorded and they just like sped it up. And turned it into another song. You know, they added things right. to it or whatever, or they slowed it down or whatever. And I mm. and I did that on auto music. So the track Ozu is I took the bowed piano from that and then I slowed it way down 
And I then built a whole new piece on top of it. So Honeycomb is really the same as Ozu. I just slowed it down <laughs> and rebuilt it. And it's kind of one of my favorite pieces too, because I, I just love what happens when you slow things down. We started off, you know, a few minutes ago um, with this concept of sort of trade secrets, you know? Yeah. And um, it seems particularly pertinent today in a way because you know basically you want to do something you want to learn how to oh i don't know caulk up your shower you know you, you go onto onto youtube and you look up a video and somebody's giving away that information for free we're in we're, we're in kind of an odd an odd era for for information you know yeah um but you you've never seemed to be worried about that kind of thing i don't um, i don't actually have any secrets i'm i i think that and i also think it's kind of it challenges me because if somebody starts doing what I'm doing, it forces me to do something else. Mm. Um, you know, I have certain things that I've developed over the years that, that I go back to and I consider part of my, you know, technique, um, uh, lots of them. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and they're all quite simple. Uh, you know, uh, it's like science. There's only so many ways to, to, you know, cook an egg or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and I have my way, you know, regardless, my ears are what they are and I'm going to make things my own, regardless of if, if the guy right next to me is doing the exact same process with the exact same instrument. So I, 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 you can't be, it's crazy. You know, you read about guys like Rudy van Gelder who, I mean, you couldn't look over Rudy's shoulder. You know, he didn't want you to see what he was doing. That to me mm -hmm. is just like fear and paranoia. And I don't have time for that. You know, mm -hmm. I'd rather just keep moving. You know, I I recently, I, ha I have an effects box. It's one of my primary things. It's something that's been a big part of my sound and, you know, since I got that box. And it was recently dying. And they're very rare. So you can't just go to the guitar center and pick one up, you know. And there had been one for sale on eBay, and I thought, ah, I should get this just so I have a backup. And then I thought, you know what? No, if it if it dies, then the universe is telling me to, you know, never use mm. that again. And I just kind of, I kind of just, you know, it didn't work, so I didn't use it. And then, lo and behold, my tech, this guy that fixes stuff for me, that can fix anything, he fixed it. Now it works better than it ever did. But I was completely mm. ready to let go of that technique forever mm. it's like if somebody said brian you're you can't ever use a hi-hat again or you can't use a bass drum again well you find a new way to do to get what you need out of it anyway you know back in the day when we first met certainly you know you you were on the road a lot um between red cross and a few other things that you were doing um i and and i wonder dude a how much do you have sort of performing live as, as any kind of priority in your life now. Um, and, and are there things you miss about being on the road as much as you were at one point or, or are you kind of happy not to have to do it? You know, I've always, you know, I think I got into music because I really wanted to travel. I love to travel. Uh, but I spent most all of my twenties touring and uh, with Red Cross. And then after leaving Red Cross, I then started touring with Air. Uh, and I did that for years. Um, and I kind of saw everything I needed to see. <laughs> um, I, and I know, you know, I've been to 49 states. I've not been to Alaska yet, but I, I can't wait to do that. Mm. Um, 
I, I travel a lot. I, I still travel a lot. I, I make a point of it. Even if I have like no money, I would still travel. But now, you know, I have a wife and an eight year old daughter. And if mm. I had to tour like I did then, I would be miserable. I would be absolutely, mm. I wouldn't do it. I would not mm. do it. But saying this, uh, I have had offers recently to, to do, perform, you know, live in, in lots of different, um, Ways one being with auto music, the other performing Hannibal score or some of the score that I've done for other films, um, and I've been thinking about it. And you know, I always love performing, but I don't like it in the beginning. I, I like once the group has got a chemistry, and hmm. that's when it's magic. Like you know, with with both Red Cross and Air on those tours, after a few weeks of rehearsal and then a few weeks of, of performing, you just get into this groove that is priceless. And that's mm. something that you can't get when you're in the studio. It's a totally different thing. And But really, I've always been most interested in creating rather than recreating. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I feel blessed that I was able to spend that time touring as I did because it's, it's, it's made me the sort of musician that I am. And, uh, but I, I think I will be doing some, some live performances probably, probably even later this year, uh, mm. in between film projects, because I, I think it would be quite interesting to play this stuff live, um, and I've got this, you know, the guys that on auto music and, and with my films, you have this, this, a lot of the same people. There's a keyboard player named Dave Palmer and a guitar player named, named Tim Young. And those guys have been recording uh, the scores with me for, I mean, Boss, Awake, Hannibal, and, all, and all, the, that's the TV stuff, but also the video game stuff and, and, and the film stuff. So mm. they're kind of my my – my band and then i've got you know my string players woodwind players um this great guy named lars who's who's norwegian um who's been playing with me a lot and then roger manning who played in jellyfish when i played in red cross and, and roger and i toured together with air and mm -hmm. we also have a, a a sort of side project band together called tv eyes mm -hmm. so there's all this stuff and these people that I play with and, and, and it would be nice to, to do some, some shows with them because we're, we're pretty good as, as, at you know, there's that thing of people that gel well together and we, we can gel so naturally together that, mm. that it would be really fun. I mean, it'd be like, you know, a, a can thing or something where there would be a lot of improvisation and there would be a lot of, stuff but but the, those guys come from the world of jazz i think and so they 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 can play anything they can follow me they can play anything they just right. blend so well right right well the idea of having people from different you know not just different styles but different sort of mentalities you know uh, improvising versus pop whatever the case is that generally will make for an interesting result yeah i mean it doesn't i don't i don't see much of it but then again, I don't go out so much, but, but I was, you know, a friend of mine was telling me just this morning how he, <laughs> we were talking about the blending and the fusions of, of music and how he feels like there hasn't been any, you know, everybody's mixed everything together to make something new now. So, and, and I told him that I've, I've always hated fusion cooking. I don't think it, it, 
it works very well. I do, mm. I do think there's different kind of schools that do work quite well. And I, and I think that Creole cooking and the way that that was a fusion is a mm. legitimate, you know, sort of fusion, if you will. But, but when you talk about music and you talk about these fusions and, and it's, it's all so interesting. It can be so interesting. I'm really, you know, one of my heroes is Toro Takamitsu, who's a Japanese film composer. And he was, mm. he was like the first guy to ever use Japanese instruments in a, in a film, in a Japanese film score. And, mm. and that was, you know, I think that was the sixties. People just, you know, mm. they didn't do these blends. And then he and his buddy, John Cage, and I think a, a few other folks went down to Bali and, and heard gamelan music. And then they brought that back and started to incorporate some of that tonality into their own mm. music really i it for me it's all about getting a little bit away from the 12 tone music and and the formulas of 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 music and pop music uh i love pop music i'm just a little bored of of its structure in mm. in new stuff i can always listen to the old stuff because it was made at a time when when there was something about it that was new you know it's it's but now when I'm just listening to and, – and I don't want to sound like I'm <laughs> an old cynical man. I'm just <laughs> – I want more and, and there are some you know some pioneering and some wonderful things happening in electronic music as well. As, I mean in all, in all shapes of music. But, but you know, you, it's, it's nice to look outside and see what, what, what's happening in other places. Thanks for listening to the Modern Drummer Podcast. This episode's interview was conducted by Adam Badovsky. E.J. Dukoski is the executive producer, and this episode's producer was Steve Malone. To learn more about all of Modern Drummer's productions, including our newest instructional manual, Rich Redmond's Fundamentals of Drumming for Kids, be sure to stop by moderndrummer.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and other major social media. See you next time. 